Well, hello, and welcome to week something of our collective quarantine and episode something. We have a couple in the can right now. I don't know. I don't know what the order is. I probably should have led with a different intro, but hi, welcome to Certified Forgotten. Uh, as always, you are joining the two hardest working mats in the horror business. Other Matt works about 150% and I work about 50%, so the math checks out. Um, with me, as always, is my buddy, Matt Donato. How you doing, Matt? Doing okay. I'm glad that we make up one whole mat between us both. I did not know that, and now I feel better as a person. We work as hard as probably the hardest working mat out there, just collectively. I just figured my 50% was just me usual, so it's nice to know there's a reason why I only work half as hard. No, you're you're creating you know tweetathons of of low budget horror movies out of thin air. You're working you're working plenty tough. The, the math added up to two whole mats. That was 150 and 50. I don't I don't want to shame him. I didn't want to start the episode by shaming <laughs> oh, no. him. Did I, especially oh, yeah. especially because he's the one oh. that schedules stuff. So oh, yeah. I try to like gently reinforce things like numbers and time zones. I misheard slowly. that. Yeah. Um. Oh, this would be a great time for you to introduce introduce our guest, Matt. With us today, I'm very happy to have not only a horror journalist, a horror lover, but also an Esquire. We don't get many Esquires on a Certified Forgotten, so I, I think it just only helps our reputation that much more. And I don't want to mispronounce your last name, Lee Monson. It's Munson. Pretend it's a U. Got it. Munson. <laughs> Lee Munson. Hi. How are you, Mats? As you can tell, not very good. Yeah, we're all struggling. It's okay. We have until until this whole situation resolves itself, uh, for better or for worse, we have a built-in excuse. So, you know, anytime it's like, ah, oh, fuck, that intro would have gone smoother, but fucking coronavirus, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that's why we're even making podcasts, right? It's just to distract ourselves from anything and everything. <laughs> Plus all the tools are free right now. That doesn't hurt either. Yep, that's true. Um, so, Lee... I'm going to move into the, the the better part of the podcast, the smoother part of the, the podcast episode. You are this week's guest. You brought a movie that um, is very important to you that you love. It's Satan's Little Helper. We're going to talk all about that uh, in the second half of the show. But, you know, I follow you on Twitter. I, I hear um, some of the stories that you share about your relationship with the horror genre. I'm very familiar with your puns. I hope we'll have a few of those <laughs> in this episode as well. Talk to, to the two of us a little bit about how you how you got into the horror genre, what those the early films were, the stuff that kind of planted those hooks early and often. So it's interesting because I didn't really become a big horror person until, I mean, college definitely, but more so even after college. Like, honestly, I didn't really become a horror person until I started writing uh, about film. In, in high school, I would watch the Saw movies and like I liked them fine. I wasn't like super into them, but like I liked them. OK, I've, I've warmed up to them a lot more since uh, watch some of the classics like Texas Chainsaw Massacre uh, and various others throughout college uh, just because I had some horror buff friends. But like it wasn't really part of my identity until I started writing for some outlets where I met some like real horror writer people and I sort of became a horror person through osmosis right like I I ended up meeting uh people like like Brian Collins and and uh the folks at Birth Movies Death some writers at Slash Film uh you Donato I shouldn't have that kind of power <laughs> Donato's just you not used to somebody being nice to him for a second for even a sliver of a second 
I know. Well, the problem is, is I'm a naturally nice person, so it's it's hard for me to to get on the same wavelength as everybody else and just dunk. Uh, so I'm sorry I'm not meaner to you, Donato. I just don't know how to react. That's fine. You're doing great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it it's something that I really picked up. Uh, there was an outlet I used to write for Substream, and uh, the editor there was a big horror person, and he exposed me to a lot of stuff. And that eventually start sort of informed my persona online. So I don't generally think of myself as exclusively a horror person, but I've definitely become a bigger figure in the horror community over the last couple of years. Yeah, and I, well, I think me... that's interesting oh, because I'm going first, Matt. Sorry, go ahead. Let me go. go. I reflect your journey into horror much more than the average Brian Collins or whatnot who have been like steeped in it and live horror from early stages, whether it was parents or things of that nature. So every week I keep hearing these people talking about, you know, oh, you know, I had a family member that started showing me movies when I was really young or like the babysitter or something like that. And I was the same way. I was college too. I mean, college is really where I found my horror identity to call it. And you know, movies like uh, Record, REC, and things of that nature really launched me into the horror genre. And like, I've done the back work now. I've I've gone exhaustively through everything. But it is, it's always interesting to hear someone actually with my similar experience and to hear that like, yeah, like horror wasn't a thing for me for a while. Like it took me a little while to get into it. Oh yeah, well, and like I've heard those stories too. And like, I don't have family members who were super into horror. Like my mom, absolutely not. My brother was into some horror, but he and I have a somewhat antagonistic relationship. So when we were growing up, I was just kind of reflexively not into anything he was into. Like my dad would watch horror movies with me, but like my dad just would watch all movies with me. So it wasn't like a thing. It was just, oh, this is another kind of movie. Like, yeah, you're the parent who lets me watch R-rated stuff. Great. We'll watch Resident Evil. So that's not really a thing that uh, when I was growing up, I, I wasn't a huge horror person. I didn't have those influences. I didn't find them until later. Yeah, well, if there's a theme for, for this podcast, it's late bloomers and day jobs, um, which I believe you hit both of those on. So you're you're in perfect company here on the Certified Forgotten Crowd. Um, <laughs> let, me, let me ask, though, since you brought that up about kind of going back and Donato mentioned catching up on the canon, um, what's been your experience you know because as a as a film critic as a journalist you 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 know even if you haven't seen them you sort of know what the established horror canon is what has been your experience going back you know later in life than some people might watch something like a texas chainsaw you know those types of films going back and and seeing those for the first time at at a a later age than most what's that experience been like for you well it's interesting because like a lot of them i don't end up having like that visceral emotional attachment to that you that a lot of people get from growing up with them i tend to approach a lot of them from like this sounds pretentious as hell but uh sort of like an analytical sort of bent i tend to i tend to look at a lot of these classics and try to figure out why did they become as big as they did like one one of my absolute favorites uh is the thing john carpenter's and it is such a wonderful film that wasn't really a huge hit when it came out and i i spent forever just kind of thinking about like why did it become this big staple of the genre afterward and like when it's clearly like got some of the best effects work that's ever been put to film and i i came to some interesting conclusions that i actually wrote about that are informed by my own queer identity and i got to thinking about 
how it came out during the AIDS crisis and how as as that crisis became more severe, the theme of a bunch of men trapped in an enclosed location with a unknown force that dwelled within their blood threatening to destroy them one by one, like that's something that may have tapped into the zeitgeist and may have figured into that film's popularity. Now, that's obviously not what the filmmakers intended in making it. That's I'm not saying that's intentional subtext, but it's really interesting to me to think about how these films developed within our culture and why they became what they are as as staples of, of this genre. Do you find yourself mostly approving, kind of going back and thinking about the historical context of these films? Do you find yourself more often saying, I, no, I totally understand why this has cemented itself a certain way in pop culture? Or are you more often kind of confused and feel like you're missing that childhood component that uh, draws a lot of people to these titles? I don't think I'm confused. I think I, I think it's just different, right? I think my passion just expresses itself differently uh, in the sense that I like dissecting movies and picking them apart and figuring out what makes them tick, at least from like an emotional and thematic standpoint. So I don't, I don't think it's different. Sometimes I wish I had the sort of giddy glee that I get that I hear some people get over particular franchises. Uh, and I, I do get those sometimes depending on, on the franchise, but it's, it's not quite the same and that's fine. Like I, I love film in my own way. I, I end up thinking back on like the things that I discovered as a teenager. It's ironic that I say that I came to horror later in life, particularly because like the movie we're going to talk about today, I came across that in high school and I hold that movie very dearly to me. And I just never thought of myself as a horror fan. I just thought of myself as this is a horror f movie that I really enjoy. And for whatever reason, I just didn't become a person who devoured horror on the whole. I just devoured movies. I think it's also like finding other people. Cause I think that's, that's the biggest thing I've realized with becoming a horror fan is it's not just about watching the movies. It, it's about going to the festivals and meeting people like y'all and mm -hmm. I, it, it, the communal aspect of horror is probably the biggest thing I've fallen in love with, you know, on par with the films themselves. Because, yes, no, I do enjoy the movies and I love watching them. But just like you said, I mean, I watched horror growing up. The same thing, you know, we'd go on a Friday night, a Thursday night at midnight with my friends. And it's like, all right, cool. Let's see the next Saw. Let's see the next whatever's coming out. But it, it was just going with my friends and not people that were appreciating what I was seeing in the same way. So that whole time I was just like watching horror. But then when I actually started writing about it, like you said, getting into it and meeting people like, again, y'all and ha ha like sharing this kind of connection is when I consider myself to become more of the horror fan, the devoted horror fan that like, I, I think that's the turning point And that's the kind of shift because like romantic comedies don't have that kind of rabid genre base and things of that nature. Like you think about the fan base and, and horror is so unique in the people that it attracts and what it means to them. I just, I don't know, it's a nice little kind of family thing. And I think that's what kind of helps along the fact that it's not just watching movies anymore. This is an actual full body experience. Yeah, absolutely. We're creating a community uh, and that's important. Like I grew up in a town of about 3000 people. So I didn't have a whole lot of choice of who my community was. I'm still very close friends with a lot of people I went to high school with, but you know, if if I'd grown up in a, a larger town or a city where maybe I would have had some greater choice in who I ended up 
associating with, then maybe I would have found a, that sort of film community. I was, I'm just the film person in, in my group, but I didn't have like a community of film people until I became a writer. And then of course, as I became a writer and found that the writing community is someone, something that I wanted to be a part of, I found that horror was a huge subset of that writing community and I fell in love. So yeah, and I, I do want to go back to your giddiness as well, because I've heard that giddiness in person. So don't discredit yourself. After the pool at Fantastic <laughs> Fest, when we watched that crazy trapped oh in an Olympic-sized swimming pool movie with a crocodile. Okay. You were quite beside yourself, and I heard that giddiness. <laughs> okay. The pool is amazing. <laughs> I mean, it's amazingly terrible in some ways, but it's amazing nonetheless. And Anyone who knows me knows that I have an especial affinity for especially terrible cinema. Uh, <laughs> I've probably seen The Room about 50 times because for there was a long stretch of time where I would find people who had not seen it yet. And I would just be like, all right, we're going to sit down. I have like a memorized commentary track that I do along with the movie because I just know so much about it. And I want to fill your brain with all the stupid shit I know about Tommy Wiseau. And then I've, I've done this. I've, I've watched this movie like so many times and jeopardized friendships uh, because of it. So yeah, I have, I have a particular affinity to weird. What the fuck movies, which I guess maybe is related to horror, but that's, that's where my giddiness comes out is, is finding something that's so off the wall and bonkers and like clearly driven by one person's weirdo vision. I love stuff like that. I, I imagine part of that that makes that adjacent to horror is the budget thing, right? Like I don't want to jump into Satan's little helper yet, but it, it is of that same kind of budget realm of like everything is bootstrap. Everything mm -hmm. is what you can cobble together. And when I think of the good and the bad in the horror genre, and I think of, you know, kind of those like what the fuck movies that you talk about, a lot of times those are those. Those are non-LA, non-New York City filmmakers that are basically like, I've got a couple of people that do community theater, like, fuck it, let's just go out and let's make it. And sometimes it's brilliant and sometimes it's terrible and sometimes you don't really know. And so you watch it over and over again to try and figure it out. But that kind of seems like maybe the the, the commonality there um, is that element of like, the right people, the right chutzpah, we can, we can make it happen. No, I think you're a hundred percent right there. I, I think what I gravitate towards film, like I love professionally made Hollywood films. Like I love that stuff, but I have a very soft spot for weird outsider art that just kind of makes you go, huh? And <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it warms my heart to see people try so hard and just make something, even if it isn't good, but to have it just singularly exist, that just makes me happy. And it makes me happy that people are out there doing that, you know? Yeah, and like that's going right back to the horror and the low budget and things of that nature. The horror genre just allows for that freedom and that creative there's nothing holding the creativity back <clears throat> where other, you know, other genres, you have to play it safe. Other genres you know, with a low budget, you're really not doing much where in the horror genre, you can communicate a message in so many different ways. You can communicate coming of age through, you know, werewolves or zombie romances and like all these weird, unique ways that people can find to tell that same story. So I think that's the attraction and that's what horror is good at. Horror is good at telling the same stories in so many different ways and doing it on a low budget 
if you're a good enough filmmaker. I mean, again, we're all critics at the same time and we've all mm. gone to Fantastic Fest especially and not every movie is created equal. Let's just say that. And um, while the boundless opportunities are tremendous for so many, there are always a few stinkers in there, but still that stinker that you're going to watch that goes balls to the wall and tries to sell the most unique message it can I'm still going to watch that over something that's just cut and dry, boring ass indie cinema. Absolutely. And what's, what's nice about horror too, is that like the reason you can make those risks in horror is because there's always going to be a market for it. Uh, that's, that's been true since the VHS days in in rental places. It's true now on video on demand, no matter how low budget or schlocky or just dumb your movie is, someone's going to see it. Because it's going to be right up their alley. It's going to be the sort of thing that they're going to gravitate towards. So it allows you to to make those sorts of risks and be like, okay, I didn't spend a ton of money making this, but it's it's weird and and it's the thing that I wanted to make. And if it finds an audience, well, it doesn't need to have a very large one in order for me to make my money back. So it's it's a very business viable way to make films. And yeah, that that's kind of the beauty of horror even even though it's like very special effects driven like you can just do it on the cheap and it's still gonna be weird and uh endearing sometimes you're gonna get a dude bro party massacre three other times you're gonna get a a veronica it's always roll the dice i actually really enjoy veronica oh fuck off (laughs) i mean well no donato if you've been listening i sort of feel like that that's appropriate based no it is it is yeah i was gonna say um, my fuck off question. sorry my fuck off was very much internally for me that was not directed no, at any way except the movie <laughs> i know I, I i heard your frustration i i understand why veronica might turn you off but my god <laughs> at the very least those first two shorts are amazing in their absolute ridiculousness i mean they try i i, I will I do I don't even know if they try. I take it back. I uh, that's a different podcast. That's the, that's uh, a different podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, let me let me save you from having to talk about that one anymore, Donato. So uh Lee, last question before we go into the movie itself. You know, obviously we're we're all part of a group of people that go to Fantastic Fest. That's definitely been a, a common theme of the podcast over our episodes. Um and kind of the question that you 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 know the question's always curious to me when I meet people is like where do you find this where do you find new and interesting things to watch you know some people are like Donato literally say yes to every publicist who emails him other people might go out and find you know really comb over the festival circuit and curate upcoming things they're excited about based on those so where do you find stuff on the horizon that really gets you excited like where are you looking to see the next horror films that you're going to be talking about and writing about in the coming year you know it's funny because. I always find myself being a really reactive writer. I don't tend to look at like trailers or I get into like the hype about what's coming up. But like when I go to Fantastic Fest, most of the movies I go into, I go into blind or go into based on the recommendation of someone else. I very rarely do a ton of looking into something before I go see it. So it's interesting for me to think about like, oh, where, where do I find my deep cuts? And it's like, I just kind of stumble upon them. I used to do what Donato does and and say yes to every publicist uh, back when I had an outlet that let me do that, but now I don't. Now I don't have that uh, for one, and one that saves me on my sanity from watching a ton of terrible things that I don't enjoy. Sometimes I'd find gems, but not uh, not as many as I wanted. 
I, I've lost my train of thought. So I, I don't know that I necessarily have a pipeline of things that I'm super looking forward to or super need to tell people about. I just stumble upon them. Like whenever I find something at Fantastic Fest, that's what I start raving about and being like, this needs distribution. I go on a rant like every six months. There was a film at Fantastic Fest two years ago called The Blood of Wolves that never got U.S. distribution, and it was hands down one of the best things I saw there. And it irks me to no end that this movie is not going to get released in the U.S. I literally spent an hour looking to see if there was any way I could import it, and uh, I can't, which I hate. <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't, I, I don't really have a way that I that I like track down things. I just sort of stumble upon them and then become obsessive and and raise the flag for them which uh i guess is what i'm doing right now on this podcast <laughs> so 100 percent. that's absolutely what you're going to be doing today i knew about this movie before you brought it but yeah i mean this is we'll get into it I, we'll, i'll say yeah it. we'll get into it yeah we'll get into it all right so that um that's us that's what we're going to talk about uh, it, stick with us. If you've seen Satan's Little Helper, probably you haven't had an opportunity to hear somebody talk about it um, for 40 minutes. We're excited about that. If you haven't seen it, now's a good time. We're going to cut away. Now's a good time. Go watch it. It's available on Amazon Prime. You don't even have to pay anything for it. You just have to live with the guilt of supporting Amazon Prime forever. All right, we're back, and we're here to talk about Satan's Little Helper. So um, I'm pretty sure Lee knows way more about this movie than I do, so I'll save any kind of like interesting behind-the-scenes stuff. But um, in a nutshell, Satan's Little Helper is a 2004 film by director Jeff Lieberman, who you might know from movies like Squirm. Um, it is It takes place on Halloween night or just before Halloween night, and it follows uh, a young boy who's obsessed with a video game that has demons fighting against God. The game teaches him that he can be, the game is called Satan's Little Helper, teaches him that he can get points for assisting Satan in the death of innocence and the destruction of life. And when he meets a real-life serial killer, he decides that it is all part of the game and that he is going to be a real-life Satan's Little Helper. But the serial killer has different plans for him and his family. That's the, uh, the box, the box synopsis there, what you'd read on the back of the VHS tape. Um, we're going to get into everything about this movie, but... I warned Lee just before this that I was going to do this. Lee has an incredible, overpowering, <laughs> amazing origin story with this film. And I, I just, I need you to share it right now, please. Such an ass. It's, it's not like a super amazing story, but like I ended up finding this movie before it came out, like on the internet because of a typo. I, I don't remember why I was doing this. I was in my computer lab in high school, which computer labs, remember those? And I was googling the dog from the simpsons 
Santa's Little Helper, and I mistyped in Satan's Little Helper, and I found the promotional website for this movie uh, in all of its 2005 glory. And I brought my friends over and we're like, what the hell is this? And we watched the trailer and we're like, we need to watch this weird ass movie. So luckily one of our friends worked at the local video rental place and he convinced his boss that just us renting this movie was going to be enough to justify buying it. And that turned out to be the case. Uh, And it just sort of became this little cult hit among, among my friend group in high school uh, and I think I'm the only one of us who went on to continue championing it uh, in the years to come. But yeah, so weirdly enough, just a typo led me to fall in love with this movie that I might not have otherwise seen. But why does that sound like such a fitting way to find this movie? Like, like in all honesty, Satan's mm-hmm. Old Helper has every ounce of that kind of blood running through it where it's like, this is a movie you watch and go, how the hell did I even find this? Why am I even watching this? What is even happening? And for mm-hmm. some reason, a typo <laughs> and finding the website online that was probably like GeoCities or some shit. Yeah, yeah. It was it was some real low-rent shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it, that all tracks. That makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. I do have to wonder because horror fa- like so many low-budget horror films, are they lean heavily into the wordplay and the titles. I wonder when Google started auto-correcting for searches, like how much search traffic went away for stuff like Satan's Little Helper. Like they were just counting on the Simpsons audiences to really you know, <laughs> just bring it home. That was like their core people. Of I people mean, that really like it's a Simpsons. big audience, you know, like it's, mm-hmm. if you're going to go for it, at least go for something that has a built-in fan base. Yeah. Everyone Googling their favorite Simpsons character, the dog. Uh <laughs> <laughs> This is a good origin into you as well, Lee. I think it just really says it. it speaks a lot both to the film and yourself. Well, okay, so now you gotta you gotta turn back the clock a little bit here and talk about what it was in high school that that made you and your friends so obsessed with the film. What made this a staple for years to come for you? I, I think well, at, at at the time, it was about finding this weirdo novelty of like, oh, it's this kid obsessed with video games. Like we were all like gamer kids and. We were all into that idea. We, we were all railing against that idea that that video games made you violent. And like we were watching this movie and it's like it felt like such a weirdo parody of that idea, even though the movie itself ends up like feeding into it fully. But we were watching it. And it's like we we can't take this seriously. And I believe there was footage of what the game looks like in the trailer. And we were like. This this looks like something that could be made on new grounds. Like it and this kid's playing it on like a portable system that really desperately wants to be a PlayStation portable but is not. It's just this weird bizarre low rentness that we couldn't take seriously. And then watching the film, it was even harder to take it seriously. But it was just so much fun. This is the meanest thing I've ever seen. I mean, like, honest to God, like Satan's Little Helper could be one of the meanest horror films I've ever seen. And not that it gets overly graphic and nasty. I just mean its intentions. Its intentions are are vile. I mean, it's like Corman-esque where it's going uh, uh, death race and assigning points and systems to killing people and actually like following through with it and exploring it with such giddiness Mm-hmm. I, I didn't expect to be, I'm not going to say I was off put by it because it's a horror film. Like that's what I was expecting, but I did not expect to be that perturbed and troubled 
by a film that looks like, as you just said, the video game that it's based on, it's worse than Newgrounds. I mean, I've seen way better stuff on Newgrounds than what they put mm-hmm. in this film. It's literally like MS Paint brought to life. Yeah, it's nuts. Cause, yeah, you're right. It is a very mean-spirited film. And that giddiness comes from the fact that a lot of the film takes place from the perspective of Doug. So it, it's giddy because you're watching it through a child's eyes who doesn't understand what he's seeing. But then you detach yourself from it as like an adult or as someone who knows better. And you're just like, oh, God, people are dying. And this kid is like really into it because he can't separate fact from fiction. It's bonkers. And I love it. Yeah. Not only that, but this little kid wants to fuck his sister. (laughs) There's also that, you know, subplot that they introduced very early in the film. That is one of the core impetuses of this fucking movie is that little Douglas Wooly. That's that's his name, right? Doug Wooly. Yeah. Wooly. Wooly with an L. Wooly with an L. The mother says he's very obsessed with his sister and the kid keeps saying he wants to marry his sister. So the first instance we get to meet this child, number one, he wants to bang his sister. Number two, he's obsessed with a video game about helping Satan send people to hell. And no one thinks this is wrong. The mom makes him a costume to be Satan's little helper for Halloween. And she's totally fine with him going out and finding Satan so they can send people to hell together. And that's in the first five minutes. And I'm like, what? Yeah, it, the the incest thing is such a weird wrinkle in this movie that like it puts it way over the top in the sense that like this could have just been about a kid who doesn't understand uh, the difference between a video game and real life. But it's got this weird wrinkle to it where he's obsessed with fucking his sister and there's no real reason for it except to add stakes around the boyfriend character. But there's other ways to introduce that conflict without immediately leaping to incest. And it holds no thematic relevance to the rest of the movie whatsoever. And yet it's just really taken for granted. And I I don't understand why. And that not understanding makes me love it all the more. (laughs) And I mean, I think maybe you're a little right in the sense that having that quote unquote subplot be in there does completely jump a step above any rational realm of like Satan's little helper or something that should be taken serious. Because when you start off on that foot, you're already off the deep end. You've already jumped as high as you can. And you're like, okay, I, I guess we don't have to take this too serious. And of course, then we get more into the film and we realize, yes, we should not take this serious at all. But there is still just the choices that this film makes and as it goes, I mean, there's just murders in broad daylight. There's anarchy in like a small town. There's all of these things. And you're going, how is this happening? How is, how is this narrative staying together? And I think the answer is the narrative never really does. Oh no. It's kind of a a shambling from set piece to set piece in, in the broad outline of a plot. And that's fine. It really is a movie that just exists to, posit what if there was a serial killer going around that was a trick-or-treater and like that's not the most original concept but when you add all these little garnishes to it that make it this weirdo beast that it is you kind of just forgive the fact that the entire third act devolves into this weird bacchanalic excess that that 
doesn't track with what the first two acts were at all. No, there is no tracking. And I mean, just <laughs> oddly enough to, t- to set a little bit of a stage, uh, um, Douglas's sister is named Jenna is played by Catherine Winnick, who's gone on to have a career that includes Vikings and a few other things that I've recognized her in. Uh, Blue Assassins was that Netflix show. And I'm looking at other things. She was in the Dark Tower. So, I mean, she's since gone on to have a career after this. And Douglas and Jenna's mother is played by Amanda Plummer. And again, a face I'm immediately like, oh, I know all these people. And that makes it even all the more surreal in a little bit because Mm -hmm. these kind of indie films... You don't usually get familiar faces, I would say. It's a lot of actors and actresses who you don't really expect to see there. Or if you do get someone like Amanda Plummer, it's like a Danny Trejo scenario where you slap his name on the cover and he's in the movie for five minutes. And yet here we have these, again, recognizable faces playing off the wall and allowing this murder subplot to just continue in broad daylight. Yeah, the fact, like... There was a, there was a few years where I hadn't watched this movie and I put it back on uh, and then I was like, oh, yeah, friggin Amanda Plummer's in this. Like, what the hell? <laughs> and it, it's like sitting down with old friends and being like, oh, yeah, you acted this out. Huh. This this makes this even more fun than I remembered. <laughs> so, I mean, here's like here's the first question, though, because I definitely see what you're talking about with the uh, gamer aspect of it. And a lot of horror films do try to question when we watch a horror film, do do we have the urge to do those things? And of course we don't, but it keeps coming up in media and it keeps coming up in the news and things of that nature. And it tries to do this with video games. And I, number one, have you ever heard or seen a film called uh, Foundly? No, I've not seen Found. Okay. I mean, Monogle has. We talked about it on the podcast with Anya. And it's another very low budget indie horror film and it does the same thing but with a much more dramatic tone and with movies and i couldn't like i almost couldn't separate the film at times uh with the thematic connections but so it's something i've seen before and yet i was really endeared by the chemistry between douglas and just satan man Mm -hmm. who never takes the mask off who is never seen talking or doing anything because He's just a man in a mask who happens to be a serial killer out murdering people on Halloween while Douglas just wants to be (laughs) trick-or-treating. He does such a good job of conveying this like weird psychopathic emotion without ever seeing his face. He's just kind of there in the mask and it's really good acting for what could have been just a really wooden part. And I think that's part of what makes this film so endearing is the fact that Satan feels like such a living character, even though all we ever see of him is a coat and latex. It's really impressive acting for for someone who I I don't think ever really went on to do anything more. I'm looking at IMDb. Joshua Annex? Yeah, like his IMDb photo is him as Satan. I think it's going to stay as that, too. I don't think that's ever going to change. <laughs> he did three roles. The other two were gay guy on street in Sex in the City. And he did an episode of Law and Order Special Victims Unit. So this guy's not been around. Satan Man was his big breakout, and it didn't go anywhere. <laughs> so, you know, do you just go out on top? You just, you're like, I can't top this performance. I'm never going to do this again. <laughs> I get it. I get it. 
Um, but no, I mean, there is something to the evilness and the maliciousness of his character. And again, as you said, without us ever seeing his face or conveying those kind of emotions, because the mask itself does a good job of conveying what's going on always with that giant, like fanged grin, always with a super big smile. So people look at the mask and you get that blend of like, all right, he's a scary monster, but at the same time, it's a Halloween mask and like, ha ha ha, we're we're not going to take any of this serious. So he's able to play that to his advantage by seemingly maneuvering through the townsfolk, you know, wolf and sheep clothing kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But then you get his first interactions with the family. And so this is past Douglas going out, finding his Satan, going to Satan and saying, hey, I want you to kill my sister's boyfriend because I want to fuck her. And, you know, the Satan man's like, all right, sure, whatever. And he does like a little thumbs up in agreement. And that's where it starts getting a little funny because Satan, uh-huh. you know, the way he communicates is basically a thumbs up or like these big grand gestures to let you know he's paying attention. And then he gets Jenna alone for the first time. And like Jenna thinks, you know, it's Alex. Jenna is convinced that the man under the mask is her boyfriend and he's playing nice with Douglas to try to win him over. And she just thinks he's really committing to the role. And in full view of Douglas and her mom in like the foyer of their family room, he just starts straight up groping her. Like, I mean, more aggressive than Ryan Guzman on Jennifer Lopez in The Boy Next Door. It's really <laughs> weirdly. That's your touch point? Yeah, 100%. <laughs> you, have you ever seen that? What? Yeah, no, I actually like it. Yeah, it's, it's a tremendous touch point if you've seen both movies. Thank you. I, I go for my audience of two. I mean, it's, it's a literal touch point. and that's the punnage that we we alluded to earlier (laughs) thank god for that but just to finish my thought real quick it's just that first scene where you don't know whether to laugh because it's being played as this like psychosexual over-the-top comedic moment again the ridiculousness of the brother just standing there watching this person molest his sister but then you realize oh my god this person is just straight up molesting the sister in broad daylight and again no one is doing anything and that's where it gets evil that's where it gets really vile and you all of a sudden go wait this dumb little indie that's been playing almost slapstick humor the whole time is really going for it oh yeah no it it gets into this really gross territory that asks like how much are we willing to go along with the idea of being someone else on Halloween? Like, and how much are we willing to put our faith into someone who's behind a mask because they're getting into a character on this one day a year when we decide, Hey, that's okay. Uh, Because if they're behind a mask, how can you be sure that that's the person that you think it is? And even if uh, they are behind the mask, does that make the things that they do? Okay. When they're, when they're inhabiting this character, it's this really kind of fucked up dynamic that it's exploring. And it doesn't really look for answers. It just says, Hey, wouldn't it be really fucked up if someone came home and you thought that they were the person you cared about, but actually they were just using the disguise to get close to you and like feel you up. That's so fucked up and, and gross. And this, this movie, (laughs) this movie is like, it's, it's really hard to take it seriously, but then like you look at the ideas it's exploring and it's not like a deep film by any means, but it's, it's grappling with these ideas of like suburban insecurity and what we unwittingly trust, uh, like from our kids who don't have like a firm grasp on morality. Like it, there, there's so many, 
dimensions where this movie decides, hey, let's be mean as possible because we can explore like just how far uh, we can violate these characters' trust. Yeah, and I think that plays to the mother's neglectfulness, I will say. Because as I mentioned in the beginning, the first thing you see is the mother not giving a crap that her son is playing a game that's helping Satan kill people. And he's taking it into real life. Like there's one thing about playing a game and realizing what you're doing is wrong. And and, like I can go play Doom and I can go play Call of Duty and like, yeah, no, that's not real life. Like that's just a video game. But this kid is actively projecting these emotions, like what he's feeling in the game in real life. And the mother doesn't really care about it. So there's a suspensive belief that that needs to be there for the viewer because we have to be along for the ride that no one is going to tell this kid what's going on is wrong or no one's going to see this kid and really understand what's going on because the mother's too busy worried about her party. She's too busy worried about going home and, you know, doing all these like quote unquote motherly things. And you have to believe that a little bit. And I think that's where the film kind of stutter steps a little bit in its ridiculousness, in its over-the-topness, over you don't have that necessitation to allow for the kid to be who he is in certain points. So it, the one way to fully commit, I think, is by ignoring the fact that, or it's not, sorry, it's not ignoring the fact, it's believing that this mother would just not give any craps about what her kid's into. Yeah, and for how this kid interacts with the world, like, he's a little bit old to have this delusional sense of of skewed reality like i would i would much more buy this if the kid were like five or six but this kid's like 10 years old and he can't seem to differentiate between fictional characters and and not and it's it's weird and it it's surreal and it doesn't it doesn't really work but then again like there's a lot in this movie that doesn't work and that's kind of what makes it fun just leaning into what doesn't work because it's just absurd and ridiculous and doing it to serve these weird themes. Yeah. You know, like how he wants to fuck his sister and the mom doesn't care. Um, I mean, yes. Full disclosure. I hated the first hour of this movie, um, which probably won't come as a surprise to Donato because I'm not a huge horror comedy person. And the first half is much more horror comedy, but I think part of one of the things, one of the disconnects that I felt early in the film, um, I agree that, that there's a lot on its mind. And I think that, the idea of um, how you portray this stuff is really interesting, but the character of Dougie needs to be sort of calibrated in, in a way. Like the movie literally says we need to set him up as being a touch unhinged from reality to the point where he will believe that he can follow this killer around and that everything's a game. How do we do that? Well, clearly he still thinks that he's going to grow up and marry his sister. That's the connection that they're going to make. So like the idea that he's going to grow up and marry his sister is the setup is the way that they set the table for being like, now it's okay because he's following a killer because you already know that the kid ain't all there. It's But in order for that to work later, you need to present him as having enough of an understanding of the situations he's in to be able to react to them in a way that in, that heightens the humor of those. So the only way that the, he, he needs to be, as a character, as, as a character on a page, it's that balance of like, he needs to be nu- nuanced enough to help s- sell some of the scenarios, but he has to be naive enough to believe that it's all just a game and I conceptually, you can make that work, but a lot of times in the movie, it just didn't work. I think Donato, I agree with you. And I said, like, that's when it feels a little unbalanced is where they're sort of moving the goalpost a little bit with the character of Dougie when it comes to how cognizant he is 
or how mature he is of these situations. But having said all that, that because the first half of the movie is a lot of that, it's a lot of Dougie, it's a lot of Alex, it's a lot of borderline sexual assault that the girl then laughs off afterwards. It's all this kind of like gross humor type of stuff that is more just not my speed than anything else. But then it does pivot and it gets really mean and it leans into this world building and it throws little hints that, you know, this unnamed killer might not even be the only one operating in this community during this evening. And the meaner it got and the less it asked us to sort of view the world through the kid's eyes and more view the world through Jenna's eyes, through the sister's eyes, I think it got kind of interesting. And I think it got into a place where I'm like, oh, I really want to, like, I want to see what the movie after this is. You know, I want there to be, if this is The Purge, I want to see what The Purge 2 looks like, where you open up the world exponentially and show what happens on this one evening when, like, these masked people are running around. So I was I was a little conflicted about it. I really thought after, like, the 50-minute mark, I was like, man, I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to let Lee and Matt talk the whole time, and I'll be like, oh, huh, mm, oh. But... As it went on, I was like, oh, okay, like this, this, the mean side of this, the side of this that is supposed to, that is leaning in, as you said, the idea that people could be around us on Halloween and we don't know who they are. The meaner this movie got, the more I liked it. Yeah. Uh, are, are we, are we moving into second half stuff now? Are we, are we talking about that? Everything is on the table now. Okay. So particularly when the movie shifts and the family starts to realize that uh, Satan is not Alex and it starts to just inch over that that line of their suspicions becoming really real that is such a transformative like tone shift for the movie because you're right it's kind of a plinky plonky soundtrack up to that point like it it's mm-hmm. having goofy fun with itself and like yeah it still has fun after after the turn but like I think about that moment when uh, Dougie's dad gets home and he doesn't suspect anything. And Jenna has figured it out. Jenna's figured out that Satan is not Alex. And she's looking around and she's like, there's a fucking killer in the house and nobody's doing anything. And then dad walks off and like talking about like, I'm one of God's avenging angels. I'm going to, I'm going to drive Satan out. Don't you worry, Doug. And Dougie's just like, get him Satan and Satan pops out from behind a door and just guts his dad. Who's been in the movie for like two minutes and just guts him right in front of him. And you finally see Dougie break and be like, Oh God, I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it. I didn't think this was real. Oh my God. And it's just like, Holy shit. We are breaking this child. And it is weirdly entertaining like it, it's weirdly gratifying just because like dougie's been such a shit this entire movie and it's like yeah you get to watch your dad die you little fuck yeah <laughs> like, into that uh it which is like the funniest emotion to take from that because usually in that scene you you want to feel for the child and you want to feel for the kid realizing that everything he's done to this point was not all a game and you want to be on his side, but I agree with you. When that, when his dad died, I was like, oh, fuck you, kid. I was like, fuck you so bad. You uh, did this. Don't ever let anybody tell you you didn't. And also the gore in that scene. Oh, my God. So funny. It looked like fruit roll-ups were coming out of his dad's yep. stomach as his intestines. Like, literally, they looked like jello mold intestines. But I loved it even more because of that. And I'm just like, this movie just gone off the deep end. I'm good, man. I'm, I, I'm like, I'm entertained. <laughs> But even with that, so, you know, again, acknowledging that the first half of the movie is not my kind of movie, Donato can vouch for that. There were, like, as soon as that switch happened, suddenly the ratio of, like, really interesting shit to, like, kind of goofy shit goes through the roof. There's all these little moments that happen about how they deal with it. 
um, that I found myself being like, oh, that's a really good, oh, that's a really good idea. And suddenly like every couple of minutes, there was a really good idea in the movie. I even, when I was taking notes, I wrote down and kind of underlined, you know, it's, it's a scene that you don't see a lot in horror films. And that's when Jenna goes out to try and find Alex. She sits down with Dougie and she says, try not to look at dad. Okay. And it's like, how many times have we seen the scene in a movie where a killer breaks in and somebody dies and they're just like, they're like moving on, you know, like, oh, we're traumatized, but also like, whatever, we needed to repaint that room anyways. And like this movie, this movie of all fucking movies takes the time to like have the siblings come together and be like, try not to look at dad. And it's such a heartfelt moment in the midst of this madness. I was like, is this good? Or I can't even, I don't even know anymore. (laughs) This might be good sometimes. Yep. That's that's the madness of Satan's little helper. And then uh, like you, you juxtapose that, though, against the parking lot scene, which happens a little earlier, where Dougie and Satan go shopping for candy, end up buying a bunch of murder weapons. And then after Satan has murdered one of the clerks who's come outside to say, hey, you have to pay for that. And all he does is stab him once and throw him in a dumpster. And after that, Dougie gets in the, a shopping cart and Satan starts pushing him around. <laughs> The entire parking lot and what we get is a beautiful montage again this is where death death race comes in of satan ramming into different people and running them over with the shopping cart the first the, like it doesn't even hesitate the very first person satan sends flying over a windshield uh the hood of a car and a windshield is a pregnant lady and it's dougie going look satan she's pregnant and then satan giddily shoves the parking uh sorry the the, the shopping cart yeah the shopping cart in, uh, into her and the girl just goes flying and you're like what the hell and then uh, they go for like an elderly elderly woman and they go for a blind person no you you forgot you forgot the most important part dougie screams 20 points 50 yeah. points 100 points <laughs> Yeah, the baby carriage, they just ram over a baby carriage. And there's no again, this is a film that has no repercussions for Satan. It's one of the one of the weird aspects of the film is that everyone's so preoccupied, I guess, with their own lives. Satan is running around a parking lot, running people over who are all like enabled in some way, and no one stops. No one tries to intervene. It's just a thing we watch happen and then is just fine. But that again, that's for me, that's kind of the weird, sorry, Lee, just real quick. The, no. One of the, the weird things about this movie is like half the time, it, it, for lack of a better phrase, it puts a hat on a hat. And then other times it knows exactly how far to go. Like to your point, Matt, all this shit is going down throughout the film. And the way that the movie addresses it more often than not is for you to pick up like faintly in the background sirens. Like they go from no sirens to suddenly there's more. And then like basically no matter what's going on in the foreground of these scenes, like you very faintly hear sirens in the background. And it, it's those little touches too, where I'm like, ah, guys, are you good? Like what's going on here, man? Tell me how to feel about this because those little touches speak to the damage that's being done around the rest of the world. And it's, it's, again, it's stuff that I think a lot of filmmakers wouldn't think to add to the movie unless it's big, bold and obvious. Well, you think about those sirens too. And then you, you look at how the film treats cops and like what it thinks of their ability. Satan single-handedly burns down a police station and, and then continues to go on a rampage and it all happens off screen. Like we don't see what happens to the police station. We just know that it gets lit on fire and all the cops are incapacitated, which is kind of the third act's really convenient way of just letting Satan run amok without any consequences. Not that he had them before, but it it's this really bizarre thing that you, you take that idea that cops are just kind of always omnipresent in the background 
And then it it demolishes that in the third act by completely just decimating the idea that cops could do anything in the first place. The first person to do a really good deep fake of the killer set to all the scenes in the police station from the original Terminator. I think that person, I don't think they'll make any money, but I know that I'll watch it on YouTube. So spend <laughs> hundreds of hours of work putting this killer into Terminator so we can reenact that cop murder police station scene that isn't shown. I would like to watch that on YouTube, please. And again, that, that's where it gets a little hard to conceptualize believing the film because we now live in a world where the entire police force has been eradicated by, you know, Matt, like you said, maybe it was one or two people or three people operating under the guise of Satan. But still, even if we have to believe what we're being force fed immediately, that there is only one person under the mask and it's one person doing all this, he's killed an entire town's police force and continues just to go about his day like nothing has happened. Well, to that point, Matt, to, to- I see. I read the the out of nowhere like handshake head bump thing that he yeah. did with another person in a mask. Did we read that as there being more than more than one like him running around? I read that as those were just stupid punks who realize they can get away with whatever they want. Yeah, that's how I read it too. Okay, I felt like maybe he recognized another person. Like, hey, you, you're doing this too. All right, have fun killing. Well, and this is one thing that the movie doesn't set up very well. But uh, he's supposed to be that arsonist that they that they show on the news broadcast like in the first act satan is supposed to be billy this this arsonist that got sent to juvie and he he finally got out of prison and like there's that whole news broadcast in the beginning about how you're mm-hmm. not supposed to leave any candles out so, so that he won't burn down your house but somehow he's taken the leap from arsonist to serial killer and the movie doesn't really do a good job of connecting those two ideas but that's that's what it's supposed to be. That was my assumption as well. That's how I was reading it. And it, all they had to do is even throw some arson in. Like, it, just have them burn something down. I guess the police station is that. But again, they don't. I agree with you, Lee. They do not take the necessary leap very seriously. <laughs> and so they just kind of go like, yeah, whatever. I was okay with it. I mean, maybe this is just a function of watching this in 2020, where the last few years have basically you know, studios have tried to leak every last bit of ambiguity out of their movies and be like, could it be him? Actually it is. And let's show you what happened. You know, like that, that kind of mentality drives a lot of storytelling these days. And so for me watching a movie where they're basically like, is it him? I mean, we don't even really know. So who cares? And you're like, okay, that's fun. I haven't, I feel like I haven't seen this in a while. Also really quick question. And we don't have to harp on it. I'm just asking for my own uh, confirmation here. Cause I want to make sure I heard this right on that head bump. Did that guy say the N word? <laughs> Uh, he yes. did. He 100%. absolutely did. And there's no reason for it. No, not at all. It is the most insane additive of a plot point. And if the, again, it feels very 2000s. And yep. we've talked about some movies and revisited movies from the early 2000s. And even in like Cabin Fever, uh, Eli Roth's version, you know, he even throws like one or two usages of that in there. And you're kind of like, oh, we used to get away with a lot more, didn't we? Yeah. Well, and we shouldn't have. Yeah, no, not not that we should know. Of course, I'm just saying, like, wow, we really we really push those limits. Well, yeah, it, I mean, it's part of it is like everybody trying to be Tarantino in the wake of the '90s, but like on top of that, it's just like entitled white suburbanite thinking that, like, yeah, why can't I say this word and like just aggressively pushing for saying it? So, yeah. But on a more fun note, we get to see a guy in a Satan mask pick up a cat. And then smash its head into the wall and write the word boo. <laughs> yeah, that happened. 
Yeah, I had literally started to write down. I was like, I hate these movies that DQ by like saying, oh, you know, we're going to do this and then they don't. And then he like murdered the cat. And I was like, I, I better cross this out. That was one of the early moments in the movie where I was like, this may not be exactly what I think it is. Well, let's talk about, Lee, I, I want to get your thoughts on on this too, because um, obviously you spent more time digesting this movie than the two of us have. Um, what did you think about the kind of like the third act? Uh, I don't want to say twist, but resolution where he gives up the killer costume and comes back as Jesus Christ. Let's mind I, the depth of that. I love this. It's weird because again, it's one of those odd bits of this movie that don't really line up with anything else that's going on in it. Like there, there is kind of this idea of like Dougie feeding into Satanism, but like that's conflated so much with his love of video games that it doesn't really matter. Like Satan could be anything for for that matter it could be any evil figure but like he he could love hitler this could have been a jojo rabbit precursor but the the fact that it decides to just pull this reversal where the the killer like is clearly being dressed up as like the most evil person in all of uh in all of fiction and then like flipping that on its head and it's like no he can come disguised as a good guy too the goodest guy even it's just a really fun twist on a movie that you you think might just be running out of gas, I think, especially because it plays with the idea that he shot himself in the hand just to give yes. himself stigmata. Yes. That is such yeah. a fun idea. <laughs> I actually forgot that moment. Sorry, just really quickly. Like I forgot the quote before where Dougie is told, Oh no, God can come back and find us as a trick or treater. That's why we can't like answer the door for him and Satan. And then it comes back again, obviously, where Dougie's alone and now he's scared. And then Dougie remembers, oh, wait, God can come as a trick-or-treater. I better go answer the door. And then there's fucking Jesus just standing there. And then I then it hit me. I'm like, oh, shit, they, they did that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, us uh, anybody who remembers their Sunday school remembers Doubting Thomas. And so I was like, this is, again, this is smarter than I thought you were going to be. And I kind of love it. I, I love that this movie does the the same thing twice in like it's a person in a costume and the characters think they're killing. They're finally killing the killer. And then it turns out to be someone else tied up inside the costume. And this movie has the balls to try and do that twice. Yes. And it's amazing. Like the first time it's super obvious, like the guy's not moving, whatever. And like there's the whole subtext of like it's Alex's dad who he thought of as the devil and he finally killed his dad. And there's like some pathos to the fake out. And like you don't believe it's his dad for a second because, well, one, you you saw his dad earlier and he clearly wasn't the killer. But then you get to the second fake out where it's Jesus tied up down in the basement and Jenna is stabbing him and she's like, oh, God. Like, I'm killing an ally. I'm killing one of the good guys. And, and like, you're doing that while he's dressed up as Jesus. Just must chef's kiss to that, my friend. It is. I was going to say, I, I love that it is a running theme that no one wants to rip the mask off whoever they're talking to. Like, right. just like you said, Alex doesn't take the mask off Satan when he has an interaction with him and Satan shoots his hand again, the stigma moment. Alex went to kill Satan right there. And all that Satan has to do to con- quote unquote convince him it's his dad is raise his hand like he's about to backhand him. And Alex just has like a mental breakdown. He's like, dad, what? what? Mm-hmm. It's like, 
just look under the mask. Like, no one looks under the fucking mask. They just do things and end up looking like idiots. And I don't know what that's a commentary on, or but it, I just kept laughing every time. Because, yeah, no shit when Jesus is down in the basement. I'm like, yeah, it's going to be the, the boyfriend. Like, yeah, you're, you're murdering right. the boyfriend. That's what we're doing here. It's like, just look. Just look under the mask. It's not hard. Or like when they go to that party that's at the castle, the mom, Meryl, she's clearly tied up in saran wrap and like in distress. And everybody's just like, weird costume i don't get it can you explain it and meanwhile satan's just pantomiming around like oh i'm clearly her husband i'm abusing her <laughs> and it's just like it's it's such this weird indictment of people's of, of like this suburban idea that like oh we're all going to be fine and nothing can touch us and we don't need to worry about our neighbors and it's just like you might need to worry about your neighbors like just a little bit, particularly if they're hiding who they are behind a mask. Like, I don't know, just a thought. <laughs> it, no, it, it, I agree with that. And I think, I think it's one of the, I think it's one of the things that the movie does really well um, is it tries to have it both ways. And for the most part, it does. Um, it tries to sort of lampoon horror characters, but also generate some empathy for the ones that it has. So like the double mask thing, the or like the triple, geez, the triple mask thing, the the double kill the killer thing, like all of all of that feels. And remembering too, when this was released in two thousand and four, kind of like you know, as, as we've talked about on this show, and as anybody who follows horror knows, not exactly the highest point in the genre's history, the early two thousands. But it feels like it's it's sort of it's trying to do its own thing without feeling like it's parody, but at the same time making it very clear how the script, uh, how Jeff Lieberman, the director, writer, director, and sort of like its audiences feel about a lot of horror movie characters too. Like a lot of characters in horror movies are that stupid. A lot of characters in horror movies will die like that. And it is sort of the rare horror film that I can think of saying that like, you don't hate the characters. And then when you realize they're all about to die, you're sort of like, yeah, but kind of fuck you also. Right. So like, it's not a movie. It, it, it does a weird thing where like you get where they're coming from. And especially because a couple of the actors are particularly good. Winnick is particularly good um, as Jenna. Y- you're there for it and you all, you don't hate them, but you're also not exactly upset when bad things happen to them. It's an interesting, it, it, it does an interesting thing to an audiences, which I, um, I, after I was over, I was like, Oh, that's yeah. I like that. I'm actually shocked you like it. I will admit that. I, I'm very shocked that you're walking away with something positive to say about Satan's Little Helpers just because I know how much horror comedy isn't your thing. I know you like bleakness. I know you like that good period bleakness kind of shit. But I was like, I, this has the mean streak that Matt might like, but I was like, I didn't think you're going to go for the comedy. At the end of the day, I've said this before, I'll say it again. The thing that gets me excited about a horror movie more than anything is if I feel like somebody's going to write a really good college essay about it. And I feel like a lot of people could write a lot of really good college essays about Satan's Little Helper. There's just enough there there uh, to make it worth their while. So there's parts of it that, that don't get me wrong, I don't want to have anything to do with. I may not watch this um, outside of a group setting, outside of an intoxicated group setting for quite some time. But there's a lot in there too, where I was like, if I was going to write about it, this is what I would write about. And anytime that I walk away from a movie feeling like I could write about this, those are movies that I'm going to tend to remember and be happy about. Meanwhile, I'm like, how do I make a drinking game to this? <laughs> you should <laughs> See, I'm closer to Monogle in, in that sense. Uh, don't get me wrong. I don't feel like this is like a huge think piece movie. I, I definitely can see some things that I could deconstruct. I mean, we've, we've talked about a lot of them on the podcast here, but I think what I gravitate towards 
it most for is the fact that it's like such a huge swing and it does more right than it does wrong. And I'm, I'm kind of in love with how this, it's just this weird little gem that has no production value whatsoever and yet still manages to pluck at your emotions and make you laugh and gives you characters that you actually kind of care about. Like it's, it's such a weird little movie and I'm, I'm just happy it exists. I think it's one of those examples where if the ideas are there and you're able to tell your story in a way that's unique and maybe not developed, but committed it, it, that's what's going to show through. That's what's going to get there in the end. And, you know, we've seen countless times indies with no budget that go nowhere. And as you've all just said on this podcast, Satan Slaves has something to say. It, it may not be the cleanest execution. It may not be the loudest or, you know, it might even be familiar, but it still has something to say. So normally we would wrap up the conversation section by talking about, you know, um, why do we think this was forgotten? According to our collective Twitters, as of like an hour ago, this movie hasn't been forgotten. Everyone we know has watched it. So let me pivot off that slightly a little bit and say, you know, this is, I've seen in doing research, I've seen that this movie has had repertory screenings. This has played DCP prints at like Los Angeles draft house locations as well, of course, but um, you know, like little boutique theaters around the country. So what does it take for this movie to go from a curio that has its champions, people like Lee, to being a staple of sort of like the midnight, you know, a um, trick-or-treat caliber movie where, you know, everybody knows it and Hot Topic starts making t-shirts about it? Like, where what does it have it in it to go over that hump? Well, I mean, this podcast, of course. Not the certified forgotten bump, the, you know, right. just like general popular culture. I It's an interesting one because I, I think... The budget might be what turns a lot of people off. Uh, Mm -hmm. We know that a lot of the general public has preconceived notions about indie horror, and this definitely fits the visual blockage, I think, that some people have. So It has some very, like, early 2000s TV movie vibes to it. So I think that's that's a hard thing to get over. And again, number two, I think it's a very early 2000s movie where a lot of people are trying to, or not, maybe not a lot, but younger generations at least have a new appreciation for horror that isn't this aggressive and in your face and they don't want to see something this vile and nasty. So I think those are two things that maybe kind of hold it back at this point. I think, I think it's time could have come maybe 10 years ago where it starts doing that rep stuff. I think, I think we've uh, missed that window though. Yeah. It's weird in, in that, I, w- I was so surprised to hear that this movie had fans because I don't think I've talked to anybody about it outside of just the few people I saw it with in high school. And even then, I probably have a better memory of it than they do uh, just because I've watched it since then. But I think this movie was just kind of this oddball curio when it came out. And I don't think anybody really cared about it. I, I don't think that... I don't think it caught on and then it just sort of became forgotten except for those of us who like really latched onto it when it came out. And I guess there's more of us than I thought, but the fact that it exists as this sort of cult icon, like maybe it is due for a resurgence, but I, I don't know what its time is. I don't know if, if we're past that time. I don't know if, I don't know if this is going to become something more just because like we're, 
we're all realizing that we're never nudes and and we have the we, we have the ability to network there are dozens of us uh <laughs> the way people talk about it hilariously mean spirited slasher i'm just reading some of the tweets the, uh, from people responding ryan larson i've seen this movie like 40 times like him admitting he's seen it that many times in the same way that you're talking about lee where he's saying i saw it with my brothers and his friends and they would play it nonstop every halloween season so i feel like that's the area where it lives um uh, kieran fisher who writes for film school rejects is the indie film guy and he knows every low budget slasher that you've never heard of and like those are the people that keep this movie alive those are the key people that are saying dude that movie's awesome that i'm so glad you're watching it for the first time and i don't know if it ever ascends above those people though that that's my mm-hmm. one issue with this I will say, as long as there are people out there on the internet writing lists about Halloween movies that take place on Halloween, I think they'll probably be a home for this one. Yep. Yes. Fall atmosphere is very nice in this film. I will say that. Good, good Northeast New England kind of stuff. Yep. I've definitely written about this movie as, as a Halloween staple before. So uh... so there we go. When it, when it takes off, when it's you know a trick-or-treat caliber and in the apocalypse caliber movie in a few years, uh, we'll know that it started here on this podcast and with our guest, Lee you're welcome world you are welcome world thank you very much all right so as uh by way of sign off if you've liked what you've heard today if you think that lee probably has some other curio lurking in their catalog of old movies that you'd really like to explore lee how do people follow you on social media what's your preferred way of talking about film with folks uh so you can follow me on twitter uh my handle is lee munson pbf and I write for Birth Movies, Death, and Slash Film, so you can find my articles there. And uh, yeah, that's uh, that's the best way to find me. Donato, would you like to talk about yourself and what where the best ways are to find you? I mean, I always love to talk about myself, but I feel like I did that enough today and on the internet. So you can just follow along at Donato Bomb, D-O-N-A-T-O-B-O-M-B, on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Instagram. Got some new stuff hitting Haw Creek Horror this week, hitting Bloody Disgusting, and all the other good places that you know I write for. Yep, a couple of weeks ago by our by your clock now if you're listening to this, but oh, still shit. check it out. Yeah, I always do that. That's such a bad. It's okay. Thing. I got yeah. I got your back. I got thanks. you back. Thanks, bud. Uh, as for me, you know where to follow me. It's mostly just Twitter, Lab Splice, L A B S P L I C E. Um, I'm back and open and unlocked for the world now, so feel free to follow along. And yeah, of course, if you like this podcast, please leave a review. Please listen to our backlog of episodes. I might be a little biased, but I think that we continue to bring on some of the best and brightest minds in horror criticism, Lee included. So uh, it's it's good stuff. Just go go back and check out the rest of the people we've talked to. And I promise you'll at least walk away with one or two movies you want to watch. And you'll probably follow um, have a new critic you want to follow on social media as well. So, Lee, I want to say thank you for bringing us this movie. I'm going to be thinking about it way too much over the next couple of weeks. And for being an awesome guest, we'll hope to have you back on soon. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for including me amongst the best and brightest. That uh, It's very flattering. I don't agree with it, but it's very flattering. Just, <laughs> Just accept the compliment. No, you can't make me. <laughs> no, that's my thing. You're not allowed to take my thing. <laughs> no, Donato, speaking of your things, I mean, we can we can end on your thing if you want to end on your thing. Demon wind? Oh god, what a question. Mark.